This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to The Edge of Analytics, a Business Radio special presentation from the floor of the 2019 MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Here again, Kate Massey. Welcome back. This is a business radio special presentation from the floor of the 2019 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball. In the next half hour, we have two fantastic guests from the big leagues, the home offices. John DeFiori, director of sports medicine with the NBA, still practice in medicine, helps run a practice in New York. Before that, the big doc for the UCLA athletic department, the whole department, and now helping look after the health and wellness of players in the NBA. He does things like proselytize good practices even for youth basketball he sits on the wearables committees helping them figure out how to improve the health and fitness of the nba players before that marianne turk coo of the nfl she oversees all facets of the nfl's operations marketing technology nfl film she comes out of the media world she also has the corporate functions hr public relations government relations longtime exec with bell media up in canada she worked her way up from operations she has engineering degrees two engineering degrees and she's bringing all that engineering savvy, operations experience, and media expertise in her role as a COO. Fun conversation with her about what's going on these days. I'm Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball, and I'm on the floor of the conference today talking with Marianne Turk. Marianne is the COO of the NFL, has been in that position for coming up on a year now after a career, I think coming out of media. We'll hear more about it, but NFL Network before before arriving at NFL proper, and before that, Bell Canada um, and Bell Media, where she was um, president of that, rising through the ranks. Marianne, good morning and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thank you for taking time out of your conference. You've already been working today, I understand. You were on yes, one of the first panels, exactly. like kicking off the whole conference, Marianne. That's right, with Jessica, yep. With the big boss. That's right. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, um, th- this being... You're coming up on your one-year anniversary. You may not have ever been to the Sloan Conference before. No, I'm, it is my first time here, and it's really exciting to be here. I met the dean of the school on the way up to do the first uh, to the, do the first panel, and it's I can't believe how huge it is. And really, kudos to Jessica for building it uh, over the last it's, few it's years. Incredible. It's unbelievable, and people are really excited to hear about what's going on and hear from all sorts of different aspects of the industry. So it's mm-hmm. good. And you can, it really plays at multiple levels. So you guys are doing the big, um, the big panels, like you right. just did one this morning, but then you've got all these vendors out here, this whole row of technology. And I can tell you from having come for years, this thing, they're getting pretty fancy out there. There's lots of them doing crazy, ridiculous, sophisticated things. And then you can go play at the researcher level. And there's this right. really interesting research track and there's a poster session over here. So it really works in lots of ways. And, and Daryl and Jessica have just done it. Yeah, it's a nice combination of trade show and conference. It's kind of it's good, right? Yeah. So, can you tell us about your path to the COO position? So, you you you're Canadian, right? And educated in Canada, and you and you worked your way up even out of the operations group. With, well, with so I I did two engineering degrees, um, a an undergrad uh, in civil engineering, and then a master's degree in uh, applied engineering math, actually, which is um, super. Interesting. Now that we're all talking about data and the fashionableness of data right now, right? Um, and so, really, I started in engineering, and then I did an MBA, and and was at Bell Canada working in operations, running that op- field operation for George Cope, who's CEO at the time, for years. And then 
We bought uh, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. We bought a portion oh. of that uh, sports entity, and I sat on the board of that. Okay. And we hired Tim Lewicki to be the CEO. Oh, wow. Okay. And that's how I met Todd Lewicki. He was at Tampa Bay Lightning then. The Lewicki family. He's got exactly. reaches in lots exactly. of different corners of sports. And so I was uh, then, I moved from operations to be the president of Bell Media, um, which is part of the whole Bell Canada family. And while there, uh, Todd asked me if I'd be interested in coming to the NFL. And I was I was really happy where I was. It was a great job. And, um, you know, when those Lewicki brothers team up on you, there's not, there's <laughs> not a lot of place to move. Uh-huh. And so my husband and I looked at each other, and our kids were sort of in college and said, hey, let's go on an adventure and go out west and went to L.A. to run the network. And then um, uh, Todd decided to go and run the expansion team for the NHL in Seattle, and okay. uh, Roger asked me to come to New York to help him out. Okay. Yep. What has that transition been like for you, both the Canada to the U.S., from the from the Midwest to maybe Northeast to the West Coast, from media to football? You did it via media, but you kind of, it was right. a, it was, you did move you know, fully into football, American football. Right. I mean, look, media is football, and football is media now. Those things are converging, so... You know, moving from Canada to the States, I would say, um, look, obviously I was a a football fan in Canada. We were the home of the NFL at TSN and CTV, the media company I ran there. Okay. Um, Can I stop you there? So this may be surprising to some Americans. I mean, you think you got Canadian football. You're probably Argonauts fans or something. But it turns out that... Canadians are big NFL fans, is that right? They're huge NFL fans, yeah. And they have lots of uh, team affiliations. You know, if you go towards the east coast of the country through to Montreal, you have a lot of Pats fans in Toronto. You sort of split between uh, the Pats, the Bills, Green Bay, going out west, a little bit of Green Bay. And then you get to the sort of the Pacific provinces and you you get a lot of Seattle fans. Okay. A lot of, of course, Dallas fans. Cowboys, But, you know, it's... There's a lot of affinity in Canada. I mean, we'll, we'll get, um, we're one-tenth the population of the states, and we'll get, we'll over-index on Super Bowl viewership, actually. Like, we'll get right? 10 or 11 million viewers on the Super Bowl in, okay. in Canada, which sounds small. But, um, and look, football in Canada, on an, uh, sometimes on the 4 o'clock Sunday game or the Sunday night football, we'll, we'll do better than Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday, okay. right? Which is sort of what we try to do. That's amazing. <laughs> So this is a ridiculous question, but I'm curious. Does your Canadianness affect your leadership style? Now that you're in America, is it? Would, is, does your Canadianness stand out in any way, or do you manage any differently because of having been come up through that country and the organizations there? Um, I would say not so much, apart from uh, purposeful using of hockey analogies just to annoy okay. everybody that I work with, <laughs> and uh, some accent and uh, funny words and things like that. But really, no. I mean. In Canada, it's just, you know, there's not as much scale. So when you make business decisions, it's like a three or four million dollar mistake is is big because, okay. Okay. you know, there's just not that much scale and things are more integrated. So when I ran Bell Media, in order to get scale, you have to be able to move across businesses. So, you know, there was radio, there was out of home, right. there was cable, I had like 30 cable channels and there was a CTV, which is a big uh, broadcast channel. Interesting. So... You've got to be able to move across different genres easily because you just don't have the scale otherwise. Okay. And Do you think that. that Bill's particular skills, we, David Epstein is somebody else we're talking to today, and he's got a book coming out claiming that generalist is actually the way to, to succeed, even today, and despite the narrative, like the world's getting more specialized. You're implying that maybe you develop some skills as a leader from having to go across a number of different businesses just to get scale. 
Oh, 100%. Look, when, when George Cope moved me from operations into media, I had been sitting around the table with the previous head of media for years. And so you learn a little bit through osmosis. But what you really learn when someone at a senior level puts you in, you you learn how to listen to the people who are there and you learn how to be really critical of talent in an area that you haven't been functionally deep in. And that skill is really important because that's how you build a team and you assess quickly. Because if you haven't been functionally deep in that area, you must surround yourself with people who are better than you. Mm-hmm. And that's an ego thing that you have to get around, but it's also just a perception of who you want to surround yourself with. And I've done that a couple of different times in my career now, and I really, it's part of what I enjoy most about doing my job. And one of the things about moving to the States that's been challenging is in different jobs I've had, people have come with me, people that I've worked with for years. And of course, bringing them across the border is not as easy, right? In what what capacity? Like a chief of staff kind of capacity? No, 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 no. Like, um, you know, when I worked in consulting and then I moved to Bell Canada, a couple of people that I work with in consulting came to work for me at Bell Canada, run parts of the operation. I okay. When I moved from operations into media, a couple of people that uh, were in operations, I put them in charge of various okay. aspects of the media business, like out of home, which is very operational. I brought more operational chops into that. So, you know, they've come with me and really helped me be successful through my whole career in, in okay. Canada. And now I'm finding those people down here. It's a whole new set of people. It's great. So this media and operations background you have seems perfect for your current job. Can you talk about NFL COO? What is that? What is, what's in your portfolio there? So I think different uh, leagues and organizations define the COO role differently. Really, if I think about it, um, there are two sides of the operation, right? There's the revenue side and there's kind of everything else, right? So at the NFL, it was really Brian Rollap and I are partners, and he runs the licensing and the revenue side, and then I run the media operations in LA, I run digital, I run films, I run marketing and uh, PR, public relations, government relations, HR, technology, all of that stuff. So really, we kind of are walk side by side when we uh, run the business. Okay. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about some of those pieces. You guys have some interesting initiatives. We're at the Sports Analytics Conference, of right. course. And so we, you know, the, the football analytics is transforming over the last couple of years. And you guys are playing a role. It's not just up to the teams to do these things. You guys are pushing some things out. So, for example, the next generation stats. Everyone's talking about NGS. Right. You have taken an active role as, on the league of making that more accessible to teams, educating teams to right. some extent. It's interesting as an outsider how you balance the tension between these are 32 competitors and they differ and they need to be able to differ. Mm -hmm. um, And yet we also want to bring them along to some extent and we want to make things easier for them. So how do do you all even is that do you all experience that as a tension? Right. I mean, whether it's a tension or not, I think there is a strong belief amongst 32 members that a rising tide floats all boats and that you have to understand what is the tidal flow and then how you're going to differentiate yourself on top of that, right? right? And there are times to cooperate and there are times to compete. Okay. And I would say on data, people get it. They get that this is part of the common infrastructure that we have to build this league on so that we continue to be okay. um, the premium sports league in the world, really. And, right. Um, the, they get that and then executing on that and understanding what you have to do at a club level, the kind of skills you need and who you have to bring in. That's where we spend a lot of time. And uh, Chris Halpin is the person at the league who leads this up. Um, he spends a lot of time with clubs talking to them about who to bring in, what kind of management style, what kind of functional expertise on the data side. And then on my team, we have a group 
um, club business development. It would be like the team book group at the NBA. And we really focus on best practices, putting people out in the clubs to help them um, understand how to use data for all different things, whether it's next-gen stats or ticketing data, pricing data, consumer data, all of that sort of thing. So, look, I don't feel the tension on that at all. I feel an urgency to really, uh, with a lot of the clubs, to, you know, I want to be good at this. Help me be good at this and help me generate scale. Okay. You've mentioned the efforts around stats and NGS and the efforts around uh, revenue generation. Um, What about on the, the sports science front? This is another frontier where there's emerging technology that make more and more data available, right. but but because it's emerging, people don't yet know really what to do with it. Right. I know you guys work with you know various health organizations, run epidemiological studies. How do you think about that front of things? How do you bring along what what? How is the tide rising on that front, and what room is left over for teams to do their own thing? Well, you heard it a little bit this morning. Michael was talking about um, data, like the next sort of frontier is really, really player health and safety. And I, as we look forward, uh, Jeff Miller is our head of player health and safety along with Dr. Alan Sills. And he, we are investing, um, we're going to be investing heavily and we have already in collecting uh, data and analyzing data around lower limb injuries, for, for instance, because there's been a lot of focus on uh, head injuries and concussion and rule changes and things like that, which is really important. We've seen great progress on that, uh, especially last season. The greatest lost time injury are lower limb injuries, right. and really, what you know, what how do how do you predict that from happening? And he kind of got it a little bit this morning. Like, do you go all the way up the chain? To, how are you training? How are you stretching? What what weights are you lifting? What what can can you predict when your Achilles is going to tear or whatever? Right. So. We are go- we're taking lots of video. We are trying to develop a database that's a that's tagged to the play. What kind of play was it? And then all the way from through what cleats was he wearing? What turf is he on? Okay. What you know all of that kind of thing. So really looking at that too. And it's we're at the very beginning stages of it, right. but it's really exciting. And I believe it's something, especially lower uh, limb injuries, where. Um, there's an element of being able to cooperate across all the leagues because it's in everybody's oh, best interest okay. for the players to be on the field or on the court as mm-hmm. opposed to at home recuperating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this is a great example where teams are individually trying to do things. But yep. you're saying, look, you know, I don't even care. We're going to give you as much possible, as best as possible. We're going to right. all learn this together. We're going to push out data. We're going to contract with the organizations to run the big studies all in an effort to improve these things. Right. And when a team is doing something that's really innovative and really strong, it's not, you know, league knows best kind of mentality. It's, oh, that's interesting. Like, let's use that team as a, as a pilot study, okay. as a Petri dish, and then we can learn from that and okay. then roll it out more broadly. Okay. Terrific. Well, listen, Marianne, thank you for stepping out of your conference to be with us no for a little problem. bit. Uh, we, it's your first one. Hope you enjoy it. Yes. And we fantastic. wish you the best with your work there at the NFL. Thank you very much. You bet. Marianne Turk, COO of the NFL. I'm Cade Massey co-host of Wharton Moneyball on the floor of the conference now talking with Dr. John DeFiore. John is the director of sports medicine with the NBA. He is still practicing there in New York after spending a long time over on the West Coast with UCLA, 23 years at UCLA, head team physician for the UCLA Department of Athletics, where he was overseeing something like, I don't know, the health care of 650 athletes and 24 NCAA sports. That's a real athletic program. John. Yes. Thanks for joining us this morning. 
Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, especially after the Bruins beat UCLA, USC, I should say. <laughs> All Basketball, right. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, it's a rough season for the Bruins, but uh, they managed to beat the Trojans. So. Well, you know, the Bruins had one of the great sports highlights of the young year with that gymnast uh, oh, yeah. a month ago or whatever. Yeah, Coach I mean, Val. It's not often that a gymnastics, a collegiate gymnastics yeah. routine goes as viral as that thing did. Yeah, she, she's, a, she's a tremendous gymnastics uh, program at UCLA, Valcondo's field. Uh, has been the coach there for many years. Okay, uh, I believe seven NCAA championships. Oh wow! Looking for her eighth this year. Okay, they got a big uh, competition coming up against number one ranked team this weekend. Okay, you know is that so, how collegiate gymnastics works? Their matches? One, yeah, they one? Have, well, they call them yeah gymnastics meet, and so so they have a uh, you know direct competition with other teams, okay. and then they advance hopefully for uh, NCAA you know championships. Which, okay. Um, is where they determine the champion. So it's like golf, probably in NCAA, where you have the matches and then you advance to the NCAAs, and then it's team and individual at the Correct. same time. Okay, Correct. got it, got it, got it. Yeah. So how did you transition from that kind of work? This is a big, big move yeah. from that yeah. kind of work, which is it's West Coast, it's all sports, it's collegiate, yeah. to East Coast basketball professional. So uh, I, this is actually starting my fifth year with the NBA. So I actually started working with the NBA when I was the team physician at UCLA. Okay. Um, and uh, it, it, it seemed to um, be something when I was talking to the folks at the NBA about it, it, it seemed to, at that point, be an opportunity to impact um, a larger you know, group of individuals in the sense that what we do at the NBA has implications for not just youth basketball, but other sports as well. Okay. And so I, I think that was very interesting to me. Um, I think the league is very progressive in, in the way they think about player health. Um, and uh, I think Adam Silver, the commissioner, is, is very interested in that. I also can tell you that his counterpart, Michelle Roberts, um, with the Players Association, feels the same way about player health. I think from my standpoint as a physician, as a sports uh, clinician and researcher, having the two leaders of a sport have a sincere, genuine interest in promoting player health makes this job very, very exciting for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're doing some good things. I think there's a lot of good things to come down the road. Talk to us about what the key issues are in the NBA. When we think about professional sports health issues, it's so obvious, you know, concussions in football mm-hmm. are such a big deal. Um, we don't hear about that as much in NBA. We don't hear There's no one that stands out as much, right. at least to the layperson. Right. Where, where do you guys consider the greatest opportunities and challenges there? Yeah, it's a very good question. In fact, when um, I, I started with the league for now in my fifth year, but we actually asked that exact question. Um, we formed a research collaboration with GE Healthcare. And the, the collaboration started uh, by forming what we call a strategic advisory board. So we have individuals who are experts in various aspects of sports medicine and sports science, including some team physicians, athletic trainers, um, me- uh, representation from the Players Association. And this group of scientists came together. And the first question that we asked was, okay, what do we think are the biggest priorities in terms of player health in the NBA mm-hmm. that we can impact with this research program? Mm-hmm. And so for, it was really f- because we're focused, this particular project was focused on musculoskeletal okay. care. So we came up with four areas that we thought were either high frequency, high impact, or both. So things that potentially would cause players to uh, miss games, 
but that they ultimately would recover from or other injuries that could potentially affect our career. Um, and so we have engaged in a really intensive research projects where we have calls for abstracts from all over the world. And now we're in the phase where grants have been administered to universities, um, again, internationally as well as nationally. And the projects are underway looking at things like patellar tendinopathy, which is a, a consistent ongoing problem in, in basketball at every level. What's the lay definition? Patellar ten- <laughs> tendinitis of the patellar tendon. And so okay. it's a, what some people call jumper's knee. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's a, a condition that affects a lot of players. Okay. Um, we're looking at things like specific types of knee problems that affect um, the bony surface of the knee that can affect a player's longevity um, and their careers. Um, and we're looking at bone stress injuries. Um, and so there's a combination of research projects going on in those areas. So we think those are key areas. Now, outside of musculoskeletal uh, injuries, we have spent a lot of time developing mental health programs in collaboration with the Players Association. I think we now have more um, uh, care available for players than we've ever had in the league um, and uh, with the Players Association, we're working uh, to develop better programs, working with teams to provide them um, templates for um, uh, programmatic approaches. How, how much progress have you made on the stigma around that kind of thing? The, I would think that well, this would be a, generally the culture has a stigma around uh, that mental health care. And I would think in professional sports, it might even be stronger. So it seems like I'm guessing one of your biggest challenges is first, we have to destigmatize this thing. Well, I, I give all credit to the players. I, I think the players who recently have made public statements, including mm-hmm. players like Kevin Love and DeMar mm-hmm. DeRozan, they do far more to remove the stigma of mental health conditions than anything that we could do at the right. league level or teams could do. I, I think it's been remarkable. And uh, I know personally, I, I, you know, Kevin obviously was at UCLA. I, I'm just grateful for, for those individuals to come out and, you know, tell their story a little bit. Um, I think it impacts not only players in the league, but younger players, younger individuals who sure. maybe never will be athletes, who see someone in, in the spotlight saying, yeah, I, I've got this issue and I'm, I'm working to take care of it. For sure. What, do you have any sense of what the impetus was? Why now? Multiple guys coming out now. And to, was, to what extent did you guys encourage that? Because you know that would be the most effective means of proselytizing those services to other players. Well, you know, it's a good question, why, why now? And I don't think I can answer that concretely, but I, I think over the years we have learned, uh, and I certainly have seen a number of young athletes, collegiate level, youth level, struggle with these issues. And I think organizationally, national organizations, sports medicine leadership organizations have recognized this. And we try to create a recognition with the players that we work with that you know it's it's important to talk about these things and we want to we want to help you and this is going to help you as a person it's going to help you pursue your interest whether it's sports or other things mm-hmm. and it just seems to me that that maybe has built up over time to where players have felt comfortable with that and um the biggest challenge i think now is partly you know the the, the stigma to the extent that it continues to be an issue but i also think Making sure that players have care and that it can be maintained, um, the, the sort of confidentiality can be maintained for them so that they can right. get the care that they need without worrying that, um, as in any health issue, that someone else is going to 
use it to for their own purposes in a public setting. Right, right. Um, this is an issue in the population as a whole, of course. Is there something special about professional athletes and you're working with basketball players? Do you think that there are special mental health challenges with that particular population? I mean, is it for, I mean, yeah. working with that kind of the pressure, the performance, the public nature of failure when there is failure? Yeah. Yeah. Are those, do those all exacerbate kind of the natural human challenge? I do. I think they, I think they do create significant challenges um, when you're in the public setting all the time. Um, and I also think the nature of being a professional athlete, particularly in the NBA, where, you know, like some other sports like baseball and hockey, you're traveling a lot. Um, it's mm-hmm. a stress on home life. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're married, you have children. Trying to maintain what we most of us would consider as normal right. day-to-day interactions is not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a different, it's a different lifestyle, and I, I think it does create challenges for people to maintain the, the communication that mm-hmm. they need to with their families, mm-hmm. with their friends, with mm-hmm. their support. Um, and I think these are all things that the league and the player association are very um, cognizant of and are trying to support the players. Got it. Well, John, we're at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference, so there's, there's lots of analytics, there's lots of technology floating around here. Of course, in the world of sports analytics, motion tracking is kind of transforming things. And so you've got these players wearing devices that allow us to follow them and understand them in a way that we've never been able to before. But right with that comes this privacy issue and who owns the data issue. And you are on the wearables committee that the NBA has put together where you're sitting down with guys from the player side as well trying to figure out I assume you're trying to figure out how can we navigate this thing it's of terrific interest beyond just NBA because other leagues are going to have to navigate this as well there's this concern that unless we can satisfy this in some way unless we can make sure the players are protected and the confidentiality and whoever rights need to be settled or settled this data source might not last so this is a way to understand play better but it's also a way maybe to improve health and improve training and tailor training to individuals. What are you seeing happen? Like, what, where do you think this is going to go? How are you, what you're doing in the NBA going to help other leagues navigate this very tricky issue? Well, it's definitely, as you mentioned, a really uh, important topic. And I think we approach it from player health standpoint, obviously um, not naive to, to all the other implications that it has, but the main focus here is developing information that can help support player health. Mm-hmm. And that means really injury prevention uh, is at the cornerstone of that. This will allow us to get much more specific information to help with injury prevention. Now, that being said, how are we doing that? So with the Players Association, we did develop this wearables committee. We have actually uh, in the midst of a, what we call a validation process. So one of the questions that we all had was these devices are, you know, available retail market. And are they really measuring what they uh, purport to be measuring and how right. accurately sure. are they measuring it? Um, how reproducible is that? It's important from a player health standpoint for sure. And so we have engaged in a process with uh, Fraunhofer International Research Institute based in Germany and with the University of Michigan. We were actually doing validation testing in the research setting, okay. in the lab setting, to determine accuracy, reproducibility wow. uh, of the of the wearable devices. Okay. And so that allows us to have some confidence in what we are trying to establish with the data sets and the application of the data. Okay. 
we're pretty far along in that process, and we hope to have that completed uh, later this spring, actually. So, by the way, John, when you do that, do you take like, multiple vendors' equipment? Is that yes. part of the process? Yes. You're trying to find out who's got the best specs here? Well, we're not trying to necessarily compare one to the other in, in a direct comparison, but we're looking for uh, a measurement that's w- within a reasonable Re, uh, area of reproducibility and accuracy. So just testing reliability. Yeah, and so okay. we're not trying to rank them. We're we're just basically, hopefully, going to have a large number of wearable I see. Uh, devices that meet a, a validation criteria that's okay. been established by the researchers. Got it. Um, and then through that, then teams and the league and the players and the player association can all have confidence that these devices are performing at the level that we feel is, is necessary. Okay, so this sounds great, but it also sounds like the low-hanging fruit, right? Let's, let's go do the non-controversial <laughs> part first. Well, I want to it's low-hanging fruit, but no one else has done it. Good, I mean, right. I, think, I think FIFA had a, had a smaller program. Okay. So when you asked about how is this going to benefit other leagues, in a way, this is going to allow other leagues to look at these devices and say, well, this one's been validated. Great. You know, John, I can tell you there are NFL teams that are concerned about the quality of some of the tracking data coming through. Right. I mean, I've heard that complaint before. It's, and it's as much a question as it is a complaint. Exactly. So, yes, it does address that. Okay. What, the, what about the thornier stuff around ownership and privacy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the privacy one, um, again, in collaboration with the Players Association, cybersecurity is a sort of a separate arm of what we're looking at. So there's, there's three parts. There's the validation part, cybersecurity, and then in-game use. Okay. And so for cybersecurity, um, again, we've come together with the Players Association, and the league has a separate process for that, and we understand, I understand that that's gone very well. So in terms of protecting that data, there will be measures in place to, to keep that from. How's it going to go? Like, who owns the, who owns the data? And right. I, and I, I'm, I'm saying this, my interest, I can tell you my interest here is that the data lives. Um, and But I'm very sympathetic to the concerns that the yep. players have. So how can you as a league executive and how can the owners and the general managers of the teams guarantee that, they won't use the data in a way you know, that exploits the player in some way. Well, it's a, a really important question. And I think once we have the validation and once that's done, cybersecurity, I think, is pretty far along as well. I think that discussion will be really able to be had in a much more specific way with the leadership, you know, Michelle Roberts and Adam Silver. But I, I feel like that, again, if the, center, if the center of this is on player health, that this should be solvable. Um, and I think really it's in the player's best interest to, to have something that they can rely on that says, hey, this is going to help me in my career. It's going to help prolong my career, hopefully, right. by having this additional information that I can use to my benefit. And that's in the be- if it's in the best interest of the players, generally speaking, right. you know, uh, in terms of their health, it should be in the best interest of the league. Now, in terms of the other factors that, you know, television and, and monetizing, this, right. that's going to be something that's going to be had at a level much higher than mine and how <laughs> that's going to work out. But I do, think, I do think it'll work out because to the extent that there's going to be additional revenue generated, that's going to benefit the players too. Got it. Well, that's going to be interesting to watch. Um, the, I'm, I'm with you. It's like it should work. Right. There's too many benefits here, including for the players themselves, for it not to work. But there's a tricky little path from here to there. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in different leagues as we go along. Before you go, people love Adam Silver. People rave about him as a commissioner. Heck, there was talk recently about maybe the NFL is trying to get him to come over. In your experience, what is it that makes Silver such a great commissioner? I think uh, he's a combination. And I hope, I hope Adam doesn't hear it. But I think he's a combination 
as someone who has what I like to call when it, when when I was at UCLA, we used to get people coming to us, try this product, try this, this is the best thing, it's going to help your players. So I would tell our staff, look, you have to have an open mind but a critical eye. And I think Adam has that. He's got that open mind and progressive thinking, but he's a critical thinker. And I think I would throw in one thing. He's got a big heart. Mm. He's got a capacity, I think, to combine those qualities and a real interest in being a steward of the game of basketball, uh, but understanding the business side of it and the interest in players and, and the community. And I think he understands that those things aren't mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. You can have a, a successful business and you can take care of people and you can grow a sport all at the same time. Uh, and, and I think that's what makes him unique. That's terrific. Great summary. Listen, John, thank you so much for stepping away from the conference and joining us. We wish you the best with your work there at the NBA and with the conference here over the next couple of days. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. You bet. John DeFiori, Director of Sports Medicine with the NBA. That has been a special presentation of Business Radio from the floor of the MIT Sports Analytics Conference. This is Cade Massey, co-host of Wharton Moneyball. If you missed any of it, you can pick it up on the SiriusXM app, or you can find us on the Wharton Moneyball podcast. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.